Calling all beings. We said we were going to do it. We done did it. We brought y'all a Bigfoot roundtable with some serious original gangsters in here. You're about to meet all of them. Uh, before we do that, uh, let me say good evening to my co-conspirator, uh, Money Nathan. Oh, there he is. Minnesota's own. So, <laughs> before we do that, though, Money Nathan, how are you, sir? I'm doing well, man. It's good to be with you on this Tuesday evening. I'm excited for our first ever Bigfoot Roundtable, and it won't be our last one either. I think this is going to be a really good one, though. We're going to set the bar high tonight. i got a good feeling about it. Yeah, this was your idea. Uh, thankfully, uh, you came up with the idea. And before we even go any further in the show, I'd like to say that uh, we're uh, blessed that the Bigfoot community has embraced us. And we've only been in as a group, been in this for maybe a year and the way that you guys have agreed to come on, to share your knowledge, uh, to to edify us on the topic, uh, including phone calls and everything, uh, we really do appreciate it. It's not something that we overlook. Um, Debs, uh, so Debs, I want to uh, say this while the whole the whole group is here because Deb has just started a new show called uh, Anomalous Debates, and she's going her and her PH candidate co-host are going to be doing Lincoln-Douglas-style debates where everybody is welcome from each community, whether you know UAPs or Bigfoot or paranormal. So if you want to debate someone in that sort of format with the time limits and so forth, um, please uh, reach out to uh, a study of UAPs on Twitter, and she will, um, she'll get you hooked up. How are you, ma'am? I think that it will be an exciting year if we can get some interesting conversations going and it's already been an interesting year isn't it <laughs> it's, it's yeah hard. yes <laughs> it's a brilliant idea it really is i mean had you, i don't know if you oh you guys may want to comment after but you know i didn't know if we would see something like this we see arguing we see fighting but she's doing it i mean in a very calm format you could watch the first episode uh they just did over the weekends on the uh, calling all beings network uh so nathan let's bring everybody in you ready all right, so in alphabetical order, <laughs> we're going to go. Um, she is the founder of uh, Project Zoobook. Uh, she's part of the Olympic Project. She's been a, a BR Faro investigator. Um, let's see, she was researcher of the year a couple of times. Um, she's from Ohio, Northeast Ohio. I'm only sorry that I didn't get to meet her when I lived there. Uh, and man, just to chat with her on Facebook, and you're going to be like, you're going to think the same thing you're thinking about Sibylla. What a wonderful human being. So party people, put those hands together for Amy Boo. Yay! Yeah. You. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and now <laughs> this gentleman right here, if you've been in the topic for anything more than 10 minutes and you don't know this gentleman, you better check yourself, Nathan. Okay? Right. We're talking about the producer. He said, oh, there's no such thing. Way to go. I'll be right back. Okay. I'm going to get you a giant squid. 
I'm going to get you inside a beaver den, uh, which, by the way, I got to hook up with Doug to get the the uh, get the the uh, video for that, because I really want to see that. Still fascinated. Uh, he was the producer of Monster Quest, among other shows on National Geographic. He's an OG in the community. Everybody knows him. They want to know if they got something real. They send it to this man right here. Put your hands together for Doug. Hi, Jack. <laughs> All right. Yes. Um, that's, ama that's amazing, DJ. <laughs> How does he do it? I only do these shows because of DJ's introductions, Doug. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. amazing. And I felt Brian like amazing. I really, I, I, I can just leave now. <laughs> no, Doug, we want to get in. We want to get your brain. Everybody's here because we knew that you would have really interesting thoughts and diverse perspectives, and that's really what the community needs to hear, right? Uh, this other young lady has done uh, research all over the South, Texas. Uh, she's even, <laughs> someone bought her property and said, hey, do you mind staying here and find out what's going on with Bigfoot on my property? And she's like, oh, yeah, I'm up for that. Uh, and by the way, I'll go out and camp in the woods with my truck for a few months. Uh, no fear. No problem. Uh, she is a Bigfoot uh, artist, investigator. And just overall bright light that we just love. And that is, of course, Miss Sibylla Irwin. <laughs> yes. So thank you for thank you for inviting me. Oh, it's a pleasure to have you. Thank you for taking us up on this offer and educating this bunch of green rookies. Uh next is uh the host <laughs> of Sasquatch uh, Odyssey podcast. I heard because I uh, talked with, interviewed this guy, Harley, this week, who said, this gentleman's going to England to speak about Bigfoot. Is that correct, sir? Yes, I will be over there in July, July the 20th. <laughs> we'll get into, I want to find out where and all that, because we have, boy, we have a ton of uh, British friends. Uh, Nathan and I have both been over there quite a bit. Uh, but he is uh, also the president of Paranormal World uh, Productions. He has a, um, uh, he also has a true crime podcast, uh, you just started a new podcast as well with another gentleman and a young lady. What's the name of that one? It, well, there's a reason that my name says host of too many podcasts because it's hard for me to keep them all straight. <laughs> there's Backwoods Horror Stories that we just started. Uh, there's yeah. Bigfoot Podcast with Wayne and I, my co-host over yes. there. It's not encounters-based. It's more of a conversational kind of thing. We kind of talk about things that piss us off in Bigfoot sometimes, so. It's a it's a definitely a different show. It's uh, catching on quite quite rapidly. People seem to be enjoying that format. So it's one of my favorite things to do. It's it's more conversational based. So, but yeah, I, I got, got news for you, dude. Brian. Everything you do is catching on because uh, everybody just wants you to come and speak. So that is, of course, the retired Atlanta police officer who joined us for a law enforcement specific uh, paranormal Bigfoot and UAP podcast. Brian King Sharp. Hands together now, North Carolina <laughs> and Georgia's own. Oh, by the way, DJ, he's got a new book out. You didn't, you didn't even oh, that. thank you. Oh, he's now Hanger an author too. Hanger One Publishing, and so yeah, please send me uh, at the conclusion of the show. We'll delay putting the episode out. Just uh, put us in the chat or on email, or actually, since we all have email, all the links of everything and everything will get in the show notes before I put the episode out. Um, what's the name of your book, Brian? Because that, that just released, right? Sasquatched 
Sasquatch Unleashed, The Truth Behind the Legend. Yeah, the pre-sale's going on now. The book will actually be out closer to the end of February for everybody, but you can get it on pre-sale now. Head over to HangarOnePublishing.com, and you'll see it right there. So, shameless book plug over. I appreciate it. No, congratulations. <laughs> and, you know, you, Deb, Deb just started writing a book, and I, I believe, I don't know, Nathan, are you willing to say that you're right? <laughs> It's it's here. It's mostly here right now. So yeah. okay, <laughs> we don't want to talk about the one because everybody's gonna <laughs> gonna crack up. But it's awesome. Um, so uh, now that we've taken care of uh, Mr. Sharp, let's take care of my man, my hometown homie, who said, "Let's get some data in here. All right, let's get some data so we can analyze, so we look like we know what we talk about." And that, of course, is the hometown homie, the the uh, empresario of the Bigfoot Mapping Project party people put those together for scott tompkins welcome scott happy to be here thank you good introduction <laughs> i don't think you can top that i'm, I'm yeah. in doug's boat right i can just leave now yeah. you we'll know just... what scott we're out of here <laughs> it, it's just it's it's just that's how excited uh, uh, it is it is such an honor when people will come on your to both be asked to be on a podcast and when someone is willing to come on and share their time with you. I just went on Doug's show with he and his son. I was so nervous, man. I was like pinching myself. It was crazy. So um, anyway, um, so here's what's going to, Oh, and Julie in the chat. Good evening, Julie, Mick, who else do we have here? Miss Mims. I might have to get my glasses over mythical legends podcast and expedition. I, that's I'm, Daniel I'm, who we were talking about over in the okay. UK. Oh, it's Dan hey. Yeah, it's Daniel's event that I'll be speaking at. So, so far, he's announced I will be there in person. Dr. Jeff Meldrum's going to be doing a live virtual talk for about an hour in, during the event as well. And he's got other guests that he's got lined up. He'll be re releasing over the next couple of weeks. So, And Harley will be there, I believe, in person as well. From uh, I think he's in Virginia now, but he's a Kentuckian. So, Allegedly, uh, that may or may not have been released, so. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, well, he, he announced, he said it on, I, th I think he said it on the show. Anyway, Pam Esper uh, from, uh, how are you, ma'am? Pam is from the uh, Bigfoot world, the central Florida uh, Bigfoot investigators. They do uh, Ocala. So uh, it's nice to see you here, ma'am. Mm -hmm. And now, um, so what's going to happen is basically we're going to go in a circular format. We may as well stay with the last name convention, Nathan. Sure. With the, uh, with Amy going first and then we'll just go Doug and et cetera. And then Brian, Sibylla, and then Scott. Um, so what's going to happen is everybody will present their topic, uh, whether it be in the form of a statement or, or question, and then all the other panelists will get a chance to uh, react to that. And then you guys can have some uh, free play at the end and just converse because I know you're all uh, have enormous regard for one another. So Amy Boo, are you ready? My friend. I am ready. All right. There, there she goes. Here she goes. She's going up. Yeah. So uh, go ahead with your, with your topic or question, ma'am. Okay. This is something we were just talking about on a Project Zoo Book uh, chat recently. And we were talking about if Sasquatch, Bigfoot, the skunk ape, whatever you want to call them, if they are flesh and blood creatures, if how would they um, adapt to the different climates 
that are presented all across the United States because we know that, and Canada, we know that people are seeing them all over the place. How would they thermoregulate if it was 120 degrees in Texas? We were just talking about uh, Texas and the nice weather there. How would they thermoregulate if they were, you know, up in the snows uh, in Alaska? Um, something just kind of fun to think about. A lot of animals have to deal with this and wondered if anybody had any ideas. So Burlington Code Factory, not a player. Right. As far as you're concerned. Okay. <laughs> no. All right. So, so from alphabetical, this will go to Doug. Yeah, I want to know. Um, and I, everybody I talk to has a different answer. I want to get everybody's opinion on whether these creatures do any form of migration or is it specifically geographic migration where they only migrate in certain areas or is there just no migration? Um, the other question I'd like to pose, I, I don't think I get to, but I'm going to no, throw another you, one out. Um, no, you, you get to, but here's the thing you have uh, to do. We're we get, we're all going to do Amy's question. Then you're, then we're going to go to yours. Oh, gotcha. so every, I don't know how this works. I'm just gonna. I'm just gonna state whatever. Yeah, regulating. Yeah. Um, I wonder um, what people think about um, Bigfoots living on the edge of humanity. Is that kind of their main hangout, and that's it? Amy, we'll come back to your question. Let's go with Doug's. All right. so was, I, was I supposed to answer her question? Yes. 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 What happens oh, is well, I Amy will just... present her question. All right. All of so you I get screw... to, to answer right. that question, and then we, and then you go, and everyone gets to answer your but question. But DJ, you so got to realize who you're dealing with here. You're who dealing I... with um, somebody who's. <laughs> um, I left my cell phone at home when I left today. I did all sorts of. I I tried to eat cereal with a fork, so. <laughs> Anyhow. You're in good company, my friend. I, mean, I am yes. the same type yeah. of dude. Anyhow, um, I don't even... Oh, how did they thermal regulate? Yes. All right. Um, well, I would imagine that if the, if there is any type of, of thermal regulating, they're doing it through some form of stupor, like bears do. Um, bears will um, take and pump the blood from their extremities into their into their core so they can either cool or they can stay warm and i would imagine that's the only way that it's done with big mammals so my guess that there would have to be some form and i don't mean hibernation but a form of stupor it's really hot they crawl into a cool area um, their blood pumps from their extremities into their core and therefore, they can regulate their temperature. So that would be my guess. That would be the best guess I can come up with. That is a, Nathan, I feel like we've got to write Doug a check after that answer. That was really already in the mail. It's already in the mail. Got it. Okay. <laughs> All right. Miss Sibyl. Or no, uh, Mr. <laughs> Let me see. So, yeah, DJ, DJ, since I start, why don't you have people state their question and then no, answer no, the no. Then have no. Then have me answer the one before it. <laughs> Amy's goes all the way around. Then we'll get oh, to your Mr. High check. Okay. Okay. All right. Um, so who do we go with next? Is it Miss Irwin, right? Okay. Yeah. Uh, you know, I've often, Amy, I've often thought of that question because we get such incredible temperatures here in, in you know, in South Texas where they, you know, they have been seen. Um, 
so it, it's a it's a question I've pondered, uh, you know, so often. And I wonder uh, if they sweat, you know, like a horse will sweat. You know, we sweat, obviously, to cool ourselves down. Um, and I wonder if the uh, like if you think of the Pacific Northwest, like the maybe the thickness of the hair they have here, as opposed to maybe uh, because I have worked with some individuals who have actually seen uh, Sasquatches with very thin hair, but they've seen a lot of skin. So maybe they're just, maybe their coats, you know, they don't have as much hair down here. And I think um, that maybe that's why they're also seen quite often by water sources. Like maybe they cool off just like we do in the water and stuff like that. That's, that's the way I would think that they do it. That's another great answer. Uh, Brian. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with Doug and Sibylla. I think the, the opposite is true for me. I have always wondered more about the colder temperatures because they're seen so farther north. And as far as I know, I may have heard one story that I've collected over the years that suggested that they may have some sort of fire usage. But other than that, there's really not a whole lot of ways to stay warm. So that's one of the things that has always fascinated me when you talk about you're getting up into Canada, Alaska, and those areas where these things are seen. How do they stay warm during those extremely cold months? Because if you take a lowland gorilla, for example, and take them out and drop them into Alaska, they're not going to be able to survive. It's just that simple. So these things have to be able to do something very similar to what Doug was talking about, possibly, to regulate their body temperature in some way. I too, I don't, I don't necessarily think they hibernate, but I think they could very much slow down their metabolism, possibly in some way, to survive in those colder temperatures. And very much like Sibylla said, and Doug said about regulating in the heat. I think you know, sweat is a good question. Do they do that? How do they do that? And using water sources to stay warm, I, I think would make the most sense to me. I know our creek is always freezing on our property, no matter what month of the year it is, and if. I've been out there and got in it myself to cool down in, in the heat of the summer when I'm working outside. So fascinating question though. Yeah. Yeah. That, that is, that is you know, a great question. Even, I'm also thinking their hunting habits must change, you know, during the summer when they're, you know, the energy, the, the amount of energy they want to expend. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Amy. Jeff. Something? Somebody else said something. Oh, okay. Um, I was, I you know, even here in Texas where the temperatures get so high, there's there's rivers um that are springs and they stay really really cool like all throughout the entire summer so i could see them using that for sure and caves yeah caves here too the other thing is is nobody says texas as cool as people from texas like the way you guys say the word is just so cool so i wish i could learn how to do it rolls off the tongue anyway let's go with uh i think scott is next right scott yeah, I'm going to break out an SAT word here. Uh, oh. I think it's uh, an eco-geographical rule. And Amy, they might have brought it up in the call, but it's Bergman's rule. And what that is, is um, it's basically larger, larger body size in colder climates. Because a larger body size allows those bigger animals, like polar bears is a good example compared to black bears, to retain their body heat. So I think in colder climates, Bergman's rule could come into effect where the Bigfoot or Sasquatch are have a larger body size uh, on average than perhaps uh, Bigfoot or similar species in warmer climates. I think that's uh, it's an established bi biological rule, and I think that it probably does apply. Um, I think it's pretty logical. However, 
I say that, and I know there's a lot of reports in my database that say there's, you know, eight foot Bigfoot in Texas. So, um, That's true. it's, it's the first thing that jumped to mind though, when you talk about temperature and, and regulating body temperature and surviving cold climates. And it's, and we have the ladies from Florida in there. We have Kathy, who is, uh, the, the leader of that group. There it is. Bigfoot world cryptids and paranormal. Um, and Pam, I'm curious what sizes they've seen and maybe you guys can throw that in the chat. Um, but yeah, that, that is a great question and yeah, we need to Zell. Uh, got some money for that answer. It was really good. Uh, all right. Now it is, um, Nathan, did you and Debs have anything you wanted to comment on that or? I, I do have something. If you, yeah, just Man. real quick. I think I've been reading about tardigrades and or or water bears and it's fascinating what they do they regulate by eliminating water in their bodies and dehydrating themselves and then rehydrating so when you hear about things like that and you're talking about an animal that hasn't been examined at least not publicly known about right there's always a chance that there's something way out there in left field that we haven't thought of so i just wanted to throw that out there that's awesome nice uh, all I can think about, well, it's a couple of things. And one is um, something to do that I recall thinking or reading about uh, humans and like the size of our brains and how energy regulation and, and temperature regulation is so important to maintain the optimum temperature for the the, you know, the brain tissue. Um, so, you know, we think about Bigfoot and how high the the head might be and you know, what's, what's the size of their, their cranial mass, you know. Uh, I think about the temperature regulation there. And then I also think about their habitat. You know, we don't seemingly, I haven't heard a lot of accounts of them having dens or living in caves, but, you know, typically if you had a habitat like that, you might have a way to better regulate temperature because in a cave, the temperature is generally about the same throughout the year if you go kind of deep, deep enough inside of that. So, you know, really, really interesting to think about. That's a good one. We got to get Will Lunsford on here from uh, Arkansas, Bigfoot investigator, talk about some caves and, and Ozark stuff. That would, that would be awesome. Um, so, Doug, it's your turn, sir, uh, your question. Yeah. Um, the, well, I was going to answer an, uh, another point um, to Amy's sure, question. Um, one thing that people don't realize is that throughout the northern latitudes, there are peat bogs. These peat bogs get very, very warm in the winter. I mean, they're warm all year, but they're Peat extremely okay. warm um, in the winter. And we've done some studies in peat bogs and, you know, putting up camera traps. And I don't want to get into a long story, but there has been some evidence presented to us that there were Bigfoots in the areas right in the middle of a, a warm peat bog um, up in northern Minnesota. And so that could be another way in the winter time that they seek um, more moderate temperatures by just taking up, you know, residence in a peat bog over the winter. It's like snow monkeys going in the hot springs. Yeah. Um, just it's the decaying vegetation that causes all this heat and it's, it's decaying sometimes 30, 40, 50 feet down. And it just produces a, a hell of a lot of heat. So that would be an interesting, it, it, it seems like they would want to bed down there. You know, for the night, I'm, I'm curious. And also, I'm sure Amy can get into later on, maybe get into the bedding a little bit that she's seen. And, and if there's any sort of a covering, because they found the beds, but I'm, I was curious if they've created any sort of a cover. Um, I don't know. Did, did you, do you have anything on that, Amy, real quick before we go to? 
I'm not if you're talking about the nests with the Olympic yes. project, they don't really have a covering except for the trees, you know, the canopy above them, which is one of the biggest reasons why I don't think it's people making them because if it was, you know, people right away started asking, why couldn't it be a person, you know, a hermit out there or something like that. Um, I don't want to get into that too much, but there's a lot of reasons why I don't think it's people but one of them is because there's no really good covering to uh, protect a human being. Yeah, it's not how we would construct no. a shelter that, that many feet thick, but nothing to cover you from the, the elements, right? Yeah. Um, so, Doug, did you want to go with your, um, with uh, once again, go uh, pre present your question, please? No, I still want to talk about Amy's question. Oh, please, go ahead. <laughs> Can I ask you why I asked, good question, why I asked it? It's it's a great question. Yeah, please. Well, the the big reason besides the fact that uh, we were talking about it um, with some of the Project Zoo book scientists, um, I had been reading about how some primates, when it gets too hot out, they will pant to let off mm -hmm. some of that heat. And so I was trying to uh, match that up with any kind of Bigfoot reports where there was that kind of behavior. And I specifically wanted to ask Scott, I was going to see if you said anything on your own, but have you ever heard any, anything like that? Just curious. I haven't. Read I have any, not. Neither have I actually, I haven't read anything uh, in the reports that have come in and even in, uh, I just um, digitized and, and plotted John Green's historical database. And I read through a lot of almost all those reports as well. I didn't see anything about panting. Now that you bring it up, um, I've heard of like, them breathing strange, or I've heard of them opening their mouths. Mm -hmm. So now I'm curious. Like, could that could that be panting? I don't know. I don't want to read into it or make something up if it's not there. Just wondered about that. Yeah, I think that mouth breathing is is a way to. Uh, I think the Tibetans do that with, uh, you know, they, they say if you breathe through your nose, you'll build up more interior heat um, for, you know, like they'll, they'll sit outside and wet those uh, red robes and they'll dry them just with their breathing. And it's, it's a lot of nose inhale and exhale through the nose. Whereas if you're trying to cool off, you use your mouth like a dog does, or like we've just talked about that the, uh, some of the primates do. So um, well, I was, was going <laughs> to mention um, I don't have as much concern of them cooling off because these creatures are never seen far from water. Never. It's just almost 99% chance they're going to be within yards of water. So they can use water to cool off. And then when you're hot, you just go inactive. You find shade and pretty much can, you know, get by even on the hottest days if you're resting. But in the wintertime, it's another story. Another way that an animal like a Bigfoot could keep warm in the winter besides peat bogs is literally just covering themselves with snow. Snow is 98% air. It's a great insulator and uh, will preserve a lot of the body heat. So just by them raking snow over their body there, they're going to be quite comfortable. Um, I suggest anybody get a chance to try it, put a foot of snow over your body and you're really quite warm. And I really think like Sibylla said that probably the hair for whatever it is would, would change depending on the climate too, Yeah, I would think. So I, I love that you mentioned that Sibylla. Okay. Next okay. question. Next question. Go ahead. Hi, check. 
Fire away. I already gave my question. Um, okay, do it again. Do it again. Let's see if I can remember. Um, I am, you know, always debating with people and never seem to get any kind of consistent answer. Um, and that is, do these things, do they migrate to get into more comfortable, you know, temperature zones? Do they only migrate, you know, maybe from Minnesota, the, the ones in the Midwest where it gets really, really cold, kind of the breadbasket, do they migrate south? Do the ones on the coast barely migrate because it's more temperate? You know, the ones in Washington, it never really gets 20 below there. Um, but here we get 20, 30, 40 below zero. Do they migrate? And do they migrate for reasons of, of comfort? Or could it be just reasons for food sources? Or if they're truly meat eaters, maybe there's, you know, uh, because meat is 365, you know, it's 365 days a year. So those are all the complicated confusion questions with migration. And I would think Scott would be, um, with the mapping project, would, you know, be forming some opinions. And I'd love to hear certainly some of Scott's, but just people in general, you know, what do they think about migration? Because it's confusing. Also, the other statement about migration, maybe this aids in us not being able to really track them. Because what if some stay, the healthy ones say, hey, I want to stick it out in Minnesota. And what if uh, older ones go, hey, I'm just going to try to make a living here. I'm not, I'm not up for that long, you know, 800-mile uh, walk. So those are some of the, the questions and sub-questions that I would really love to get some uh, more opinions on. I'm patiently Sibilla, is, is it my the, turn with bated breath here. <laughs> but yeah, Sibilla, is it the property taxes, you think? Or, uh... <laughs> oh, she's, she's frozen. There you go. She's back. Okay. Yeah. What, not... what do you think okay. about that? So we're talking about migration. Um, yes. Uh, do they migrate? I, What's what? It, yeah, I have. I have heard some witnesses talk about seeing Sasquatches following a, a migration of elk that were leaving Colorado and going for New Mexico. You know, and because New Mexico, there was a Native American reservation just right there, and that they were leaving Colorado and heading to New Mexico. Um, so I kind of think that there is migration following the elk herds um, for, for that group. But I, I, I think it's really site and region specific about whether they migrate or not. I do know that um, when I was living in Kentucky on that research project, that when, when it was hunting season and all the hunters were out in the fields, you know, the surrounding doing their hunting, I had zero activity. Like they, like the Sasquatches literally just went dark. Like they, they seemed to understand that there were, uh, and there were plots of land that, that were hunted and, and, and there were plots of land, like tons of acreage that was never hunted. Um, and they, there were sightings in the areas that were never hunted. And there were like zero sightings in the areas that were hunted. So, uh, and that doesn't really that doesn't really pertain to migration, but it does seem to point to the fact that they really understand uh, some of the some of our activities and how to avoid us <laughs> when they need to. They're so intelligent; it's just unbelievable oh. how they've figured out how to maneuver around us. 
It's I know that's like a whole show in itself. Fair, fair. Uh, Mr. King Sharp. I just have to go with my gut on this because I don't have enough data to speak intelligently about it because I really haven't studied the migration of Sasquatch. I don't think anybody really knows. Obviously, everything we're talking about is subjective. My gut has always told me no. And I don't really know outside of that just to say it's my gut feeling. It doesn't make sense to me that they would migrate because if they are as elusive as I believe them to be, migration opens up a whole nother litany of problems for these things to go from one place to another. Like Doug said, you know, you're, you're talking 30, 40 below in Minnesota. They may have to go 800 miles to get to a more temperate climate in the middle of the winter. It just doesn't make sense to me that they're doing that all across the country, let's say, because I think if they were, we would have more sightings of these things in certain times of the year, like winter, when it would make sense that they were doing this migration. That's why my gut has always told me no. Of course, like most things, I'm usually wrong a lot of the time, so I could certainly be wrong about this, but my gut has always told me no. I just I don't think that they migrate. Again, that's that's about as intelligently as I can speak about it because I don't have anything other than my gut that tells me that. So, you're you're in great company. And then I think the question would be, what constitutes migration? Is it just that they're going, you know, uh, several, you know, several miles away, or you know, double digit miles away? You know, so uh, that that could be a form of migration. I don't know. I guess I don't know the definition, but I'll bet you that uh, Scott Tompkins does. Uh, I happen to be a hunter, Sibylla, and uh, I've also done analysis on some uh, some of the Bigfoot sightings in the database seasonally. So my first comment would be along the lines of migration. Um, I'll use mule deer, for example, and elk. They have a summer range and a winter range, right? So some elk sometimes are very, their summer range can be, you know, up in high elevation, right? And then their winter range is down in, in like farm fields and things like that that don't happen to be that far away in a linear distance but if you go up in elevation they're really um it's, it's a big change in climate and um and by and and the environment that they're in so i guess where i'm going with that would be what i've seen in the analysis that i've done i think if you were to say migration i think bigfoot and this is my opinion based just solely i'll send you the post that i did uh, a couple years ago uh, there's a winter range. And I think what I've seen in the data is that it's actually more spread out. The sightings are further apart. And if you think about food availability, that might be why, right? They're, they're, it's, it's more scarce, particularly in the Northeast is where I saw a more spread out uh, range in the winter. And then uh, spring comes along and it starts to, to um, concentrate. Summer is the most concentrated time that I've seen in, in the map anyway. And then fall, they start to spread out again. So that could be for a lot of reasons. It could be for mating. It could be for food availability. It could be for uh, like weather um, or all mm -hmm. of the above. So in short, I think, yes, they do regionally migrate. If that could be a, uh, a term I could coin, kind of like a winter range and a summer range situation, similar to elk and mule deer. But as far as uh, long ranging <laughs> migrations, like from you know, hundreds or, or thousands of miles. I don't see that in the data. But then again, you know, who's to say that um, the database that I've got is complete? We're still working on it. But based on what I've analyzed, I think there's a regional migration based on, again, either mating, uh, food availability and weather and, and seasonal change. 
That's what I'm seeing so far. I know this this would be more in the realm of subjective, but do you, Scott, uh, feel like there that those teenagers, when they get to a certain age, they have to leave that troop, if you will, where there's an alpha male in place? It's possible. I mean, going back to elk again, there's like satellite bulls and they ch and they roam looking for a herd or, or for um, or for females. So, yeah, I think it's possible. Um, but to that's where data is key and really to get reliable reports to be able to say that, you know, authoritatively, that's a tough one, because how does somebody who sees a Bigfoot for the first time know the age or the gender, et cetera? Right. So. I think it's using known wildlife as a model. Yes, I think it's possible, but I, I don't have anything in the data set to, to authoritatively say, yeah, I think that's happening. Great scientist. Uh, we have to tell us, tell us what you do at some point during the show, but uh, let's go to Mr. <laughs> King Sharp. Or no, actually it's Miss Sibylla. Oh, uh, no, wait, we went to, uh, oh, Amy. Amy. <laughs> We got, we got to come back around the circle. Thank you, love. Around the circle or around the circle. Thank you, love. Like volleyball, right? You got to rotate right, in. Right, right. Yes. Well, I think I agree with everybody that I don't think the term migration maybe is the best word because as far as most people are thinking of, you know, geese flying south and going long distances. Um, but we do have some evidence of, you know, if you're looking at track evidence where there will be tracks that look like they're from the same animal that show up several miles away many years later or even closer in time. So if those are legitimate tracks, then it seems like they do, you know, move around, around quite a bit. Um, I have an app called Follow, F-A-H-L-O. It's not my app, but I downloaded the app where you can buy, buy a bracelet that will follow like a gorilla or an elephant and it gives money, you know, to help the animals and you could see how they move around and things. So they definitely move around for food. Um, maybe the climate. I, I agree with whoever it was that said it would really depend on if they have to move. If they don't have to move, I don't think they would move much, you know, but if they need to move around a little bit or a lot to follow food, then for sure. Um, and I was glad that you brought it up. I was, this is what I was waiting to say is that, um, from my understanding, gorillas do leave one group to go to another group, um, to help protect the breeding population, you know, um, especially if there aren't that many Sasquatch. And my personal belief is there's, there could be less than we think. I don't know that, of course. I'm just thinking of like the Cross River gorillas. Um, they think there are only two to 300 left in the wild now, and they would have to be protective of, of their breeding population. Um, so yes, like you said, DJ, the younger male gorillas will go to another troop because they aren't allowed to be, you know, back with the, with the main silverback. And um you know, so they go over there for that reason. And you said that too, Scott, about mating. So that is something, again, if they are a natural creature, if they are some type of a primate, you know, it would depend on whether they're closer to an orangutan gorilla or a human. But I could see that that would be a possibility that they leave. Yeah. And um, I was going to say, um, I think, um, 
you know, people have extrapolated upon, you know, you'll, you'll see people that have seen a male and a female or a group of female. And they'll say, wow, the male looks really well coiffed and taken care of. And then they'll see one that looks not quite as large, but really scraggly hair, dirty hair. And so the, the, you know, they, you can sort of build, build an narrative out of that. Um, you know, it's, it's just, you know, it's anecdotal, but it, you know, it's something, uh, like they say, and you know, um, Anec- anecdotes are a form of evidence. There may not be proof, but they're evidence. So interesting. And here I'm talk- talking to Brian. He's gonna be like, "Yo, let me get my book out." Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> um, okay. So, so I think did we get everybody? Did I miss? Did Mister Highcheck need to get in? Help me out, Nathan. Where are we at? Uh, we're good. Unless uh, Deb may have a comment. I don't know if she wants to. Yes, yeah, please. I wanted to add one more point. So migration is something that a, a lot of more intelligent primates have done in the, the whole great ape family. Um, and one of the reasons we know that is because they diversified. And from what I've heard, there is some diversity with Sasquatch. So I just wanted to throw that out there as a potential piece of evidence. That's another great topic too, Deb, that whole, that whole line. Nathan, did you have anything? Uh, I was going to mention that um, to me, it seems to be a, a, a Sort of a function of energy and caloric need so what what is their diet i mean if they're if they're a creature of the size that they would have to be being so tall so muscular etc what, the, what is their primary food source and i would think it would need to be something that would be you know very calorically dense energy rich um, otherwise they have to consume a, a tremendous amount of vegetation to to meet the caloric needs that they would have and so you know migration i would imagine would be really tethered to the food that they need to sustain their their biomass and so that you think about a huge creature the more they have to travel the more energy they actually need to be able to do that so maybe they do travel with uh, these herds because that might be their primary food source yeah when i went to survival school they talk about that over and over about um expending energy when you're in a survival situation and how many calories you're going to need to go do x y and z and of course these shows like alone you know they talk about that as well but they hit that over and over in survival school um i think you know bigfoot like me is upset that uh whole foods doesn't have those tatanka bars the buffalo with the cranberry because man that was a great great food source you know they could just carry it with them you know great calories but um, anyway, uh, okay, so that was Doug. So we need to go to Miss Erwin. Uh, okay, so um, there's a question that comes to me all the time uh, from from my, uh, you know, the people that watch my um, channel. And I feel such a big responsibility to people when they ask me this question. And I would love to hear from everyone on this panel like, how do they answer this question when people ask it? Are these beings dangerous? And, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm working tomorrow with a man who literally says the only reason he's alive is because he, they had weapons. And then there, on the other hand, you have people who have just incredibly, uh, incredible, like, like the, the, the one man who, you know, the Sasquatch was doing sign language to speak to him. So you have these experiences all over the spectrum from the most aggressive to, you know, just they're curious about you. So I'd love to know how the people in this panel feel about how, just how dangerous are these creatures, these beings? 
Brian. Great question. I can tell you, I have never been of the opinion that every Sasquatch out there is out to kill everybody. They're responsible for every person who goes missing in the, the national parks across the country. But I can tell you this from personal experience. I've talked to a lot of people who have had experiences and there have been some hair raising experiences that I've documented on my show. At least just recently, I had a, a gentleman come on first nations person from up in he's in Alaska and he was talking about, I mean, he started his channel talking about these things are not our friends. He got into their oral history and their oral history is nothing but warnings about the hairy man. And it has played out time and time and again in his life and the life of some of the elders that he has associated with and his friends and family. He told a harrowing story on my show just last week about having to shoot his way out of a cabin. And that's, that was, that's, it's very, go ahead. That's Fred, right? Is that Fred? Yes. 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 Okay. So I'm going to be uh, doing wit his witness sketches. He mentioned that. So yes, that, that's awesome. serendipity, serendipity, right? Yeah. That's awesome. Sketching oh, encounters. So yeah. Yeah. And I, I'm very excited to, to see that you, you're going to work with him and, and come up with some of these images because his stories are so compelling. And I believe every word that comes out of Fred's mouth, to be quite honest with you. He has no dog in the fight to be telling anything other than the truth here. And other people I've had on the show that have talked about very scary encounters with these things. So if they are large primates, and I believe that they are, they have the propensity, just like human beings, to be very dangerous creatures. I think these things have personalities very similar to people. They are nice people, and they are horrible people. There are people who kill in rage and there are serial killers and I'm certainly not trying to put those traits on any Sasquatch by any means. So please don't quote me there. But I said all that to say, I think there is the propensity for that to be there in these creatures, just like in human beings. So I think they, they can't be very dangerous. And I think that everybody who goes out looking for these things needs to be careful. And I think you need to have your head on a swivel. And I think you need to be smart about doing your research and go out in pairs at least with other people and be prepared. You know, some people don't like to carry weapons. I don't go hiking on my 40 acres here without a weapon because of bears. You know, I don't want to shoot a bear, but I don't want to be mauled by one either. And I certainly don't want to be killed by a Sasquatch. I don't want to kill a Sasquatch, but you, you need to protect yourself. And I think you have to be smart. So long winded way to say, I think these things are dangerous. I think they can be dangerous. Are they all dangerous? bloodthirsty killers by no stretch of the imagination. They're just like bears. They're just like gorillas. They're like any other large primate and or large dangerous mammals. You have to treat them with respect and the propensity for danger is always there. Can't argue with that. And there's enough encounters where they've walked through campsites and not touched anybody's stuff. So, you know, you, you have to take that into account, but you, you also, you know, it's, it's a dangerous animal. I just want to say uh, for everybody out there, this is calling all beings and man, what an amazing panel we have tonight. You guys are just killing it just exactly like we thought you would. So uh, with that, uh, let's see right after uh, uh, Mr. Sharp goes, Mr. Tompkins. Cool. I, I'm going to repeat something my grandmother had to hammer into me when I was a kid is don't touch wild animals, you know? So I think, Sasquatch are wild animals and along the same lines like Brian was saying um, situationally it depends on how they're going to behave and what they perceive that if you're a threat or not right so uh, for example if uh, a mother bear has cubs 
or an alligator is near its nest, that natural instinct to protect their young is going to kick in and they become lethal, right? But any other time, uh, they might may avoid you and just go a different way. So I think it really depends on how, because they have a higher intellect, how they perceive that person's behavior, if they recognize weapons and pattern that, if they think you're infringing on their territory, as you know, a, an alpha male might think. So I think we, my answer is yes, they can be dangerous. I agree with that. But I do think that it's, they don't necessarily um, behave that way all the time. I think it's a reaction more than it is a habit with uh, these creatures, um, depending on what they, they perceive that we're, we're doing in, the, in their world. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Miss, Miss Amy. I agree with what the gentleman said before me. Um, if they are some type of a natural, you know, earthly creature, I would just say, Mama Bear, like you did, Scott, you know, I'm a nice person, but go after my daughter and I'm not, <laughs> you know. Um, so I would I would think that any type of an animal or um, even if they're closer to a human would do the same. And just to play devil's advocate here, because I think everybody knows that my interest in Sasquatch is um, based on whether or not they could be a living, breathing, pooping, mating animal, right? That's that's where I, that's how I look at them. That's, that's my interest, not saying I'm right. Um, but if they were something different, say something spiritual, and I'm seeing different comments in the chat, which I greatly respect um, other people's ideas, I hope that they wouldn't be just all good. And I don't know if that sounds really weird, but to <laughs> me, but to me, something that would have no ability to show even like righteous anger or something like that would be um, they wouldn't have any kind of free will. You know what I mean? Like, so I know I'm kind of getting out there, but even if you're looking at it in a different way, I think there's always, um, always the potential of getting angry right i don't know sure. just trying to think outside the box here but as for as an animal i um you know we talk a lot about different primates i always say i'd much rather meet a gorilla than a chimpanzee out in the woods you know they're very different but i don't want to make a mad gorilla either so um yeah i think i think that they could be dangerous the only just chimp i'd want to meet would be a bonobo that's it. Yes, that could be okay. <laughs> yeah. Your students must absolutely love you, Amy, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> Some days. I, <laughs> I was going to say, I didn't get to ask this on Doug's show, but like we say, uh, living, breathing, flesh and blood or something else. I like to say, it, absolutely, I believe it's a living, breathing, flesh creature, you know, animal, part human, whatever you want to call it. But like humans, there are humans that have some extraordinary abilities, you know, mm -hmm. remote viewing. We can get into uh, psychokinesis, all these different things. Is it possible mm -hmm. that some of them have an ability, even though it's a flesh and bleeding mm -hmm. creature? That way we don't have to, you know, say you're either on this side or you're on that side. Maybe there's a middle I ground. I definitely agree. And a lot of things that are paranormal, we just can't explain, I think. Yeah. Can, we have ghosts. I mean, Doug had them in his house. So mm -hmm. is it possible <laughs> they have ghosts too when they die and they just... Yeah. You know, they're chilling around in, in, in Salt Fork State Park where they found a great home for maybe 20, 30 years or more. Yeah. 
I don't know. Why does it have to be? Why does it have to be either or? Like you're either flesh and blood, or you're spiritual. Why? Why can't it be a mixture of those things? Like we are. We're flesh and blood, and right. we're spiritual beings as well. That's a good point. We have a consciousness. That's right. Great point. Great point, Sibylla. <laughs> All right. Um, did uh, Deb and Nathan have anything before we? Oh, do we? Doug, I'm sorry, Mr. Hutchins. Mr. Hutchins, sir. Oh. Um. Okay. So I think Brian started it out really good. You're dealing with probably an animal or a creature that generally operates on fear because they do stay out of trouble most of the time. You know, they don't, they don't run into a small town and start tearing awnings off buildings. Okay. So they operate on fear like a black bear. So they're reserved, but I think they're very, very individual. I think, um, you know, just like people, You've got more curious ones, less curious ones, wise ones, naive ones. Um, you've got different sexes that are going to behave differently. And that really becomes hard to then put some kind of pattern on them, you know, to put a label on them. Um, obviously, I've experienced their explosive temper. So I do believe if you surprise them, they have an explosive temper, like a chimp or even a gorilla. They can explode, too, and just, it doesn't mean they're going to kill somebody, but they might grab you by the leg and drag you up the hill quick, you know, just to show you who's boss, because you startled them. Um, black bears are the same way. Um, I've been in many, many close, one foot away with mother with cubs, and everything's cool, but I'll do something just a little wrong that I don't even know what I did. And it'll set her off explosively and she'll swat you or swat the ground. And um, I think they're a lot like that, you know. So if you maintain your distance, don't do anything rash. I think you're generally safe. But there may be also Bigfoots that um, have got a health problem. They're starving. They're ornery. They've got a thorn in their foot. They have an injury. And like wild animals, those animals are going to be more dangerous. You know, if they're starving and whatnot. Um, and so that's kind of it. And that's kind of back to the, even the migration thing. I think we're just dealing with so many individuals that do so many different things. There's no pattern except for some patterns. And so it becomes a really <laughs> tough thing to get a handle on. You know, far, far harder than like a, a troop of gorillas that eat a very few different types of plants you have very similar habits. I think Bigfoots are kind of all over the map, you know. So those are my feelings. But that's great. my new slogan, it's, Doug. Bigfoots yeah, yeah, all over exactly. the map. Yeah, everything's all over the map. Um, <laughs> Do you take Venmo, Doug? Yeah, I take Venmo. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> um, SUNY Cortland's own Scott Tompkins. But uh, you know, even bears, like Brian had mentioned, taking a, 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 a gun when he goes out because of the black bears. Generally, you're okay. But, man, if you get a bad one, you know, you'd hate to be unarmed. And that does happen. There are black bear attacks. They're rare, but they do happen. Mm -hmm. And no doubt there's Bigfoot attacks that we don't know anything about because there's nobody surviving to tell the tale. You know, if a yep. big one, Bigfoot wants to get you, it's going to drag you off. There's no doubt in my mind you're going to be dragged away into the woods. You know, you're yep. probably not going to be killed right then and there. 
you're going to be dragged away, um, and you probably are going to be killed. But um, I just know that there's uh, a great range of individuals with these things. And I, don't, I will say for sure, yes, they have an explosive temper. So, But I, I'm still here. They didn't kill me. And there's a lot of anecdotes that suggest that there are far more where people walked away or it walked away than there are anecdotes where someone was more uh, was injured. Of course, I think it was Ohio, Amy, where those two fishermen, they kind of uh, got close to that island. The rocks started coming off that little island. Then he, he exited the boat with his cousin in there. It was a ranger. He took through a rock and then it, it came flying out of the woods and whacked him and broke his ribs. Uh, yeah. And they had like a 45 minute troll back to the uh, the car. So, yeah. um, you know, that I one think was like everybody was saying, like, think you hear stories about that. But personally, I don't think there's like um, and not that you were saying it, but I just thought about it. I don't think there's any like like maliciousness or evil intent behind it. I think it's more just like get out of here. Yeah. <laughs> Leave us alone. This is where yeah. I fish, not you. Becca. Well, the <laughs> the fact that they throw rocks should tell everybody they don't want to confront you. Right. You know, the rock throwing alone is mainly to warn you without confrontation. You know, they don't want an altercation. And that's, you know, just uh, uh, that that old um, uh, cliche about them just operating on fear, which has helped them survive all these years. You know, it's a survival mechanism. That's why black bears are scared of their own shadows. It's helped them survive. Black bears evolved during, um, uh, they had to survive when there were saber-toothed tigers roaming. And so that's why black bears are so skittish. You know, we don't have the saber-toothed tigers now, but boy, they, they know their place. You know, when they skid up a tree, they're, they're, they're doing that because they're scared. So. And uh, that voice you're hearing right there is Mr. Doug Hycheck. One of the things we didn't mention at the open is that Doug has something around – he's an inventor with something like 1,500 patents. A lot of people don't know that about him. But uh, our discussion of motorcycles led us into that he's an inventor, and it's just uh, fascinating. Um, so this is a question from Pam Esper, my friend from Central Florida, and she would like to know – Nathan, would you read that one, sir? Absolutely. All right. So Pam says, DJ, I would like to know from some of the panel, what do you think about Skunk Ape Florida, Louisiana, Texas? Do you believe them to be some form of monkey instead of a Bigfoot? Who would like to tackle that one? Anyone? Yeah. Scott? I, yeah, I'll I'll speak, yeah, I'll let Scott speak yeah. up in a second. I'll, just really quickly, I'll say I believe that Skunk Ape is some sort of a Bigfoot. That's just always been my take on it. And again, I've had some very aggressive encounters come out of Louisiana where dogs have been killed and thrown 40 feet over people's heads. I don't think it's a small, smaller version of some sort of a monkey or something, in my opinion, doing that. I think it's some sort of a Bigfoot. Yeah, I'm on I the think, same page. Uh, I, I think it's Bergman, Bergman's Law, you know, in full effect. Yeah. Um, and they're lighter. Uh, they're often described with reddish hair, which would be less... Um, um, it would be uh, tend to heat up less than black hair or gray hair. So yeah, it just I think they're just a form of a Bigfoot too. That's definitely on the far end of Bergman's law. They're smaller with a smaller body mass. Scott, 
Yeah, I agree with Brian and Doug. Uh, and I, I'll chime in with, uh, I don't know if everyone knows this, but there's actually a population of monkeys that live in Ocala, uh, like State National Forest, State Park there. There's a small population of monkeys that live in the swamps there. And um, so you may be seeing monkeys, actually. But I do believe the skunk ape that, that populates like the Gulf Coast is, is a Bigfoot. And um, Alex Petikov, who is a wonderful researcher and I have done a lot of research and talks about uh, that hotspot that's in uh, like central Florida there near Ocala. And also he and I did an expedition into the Atchafalaya uh, last year. We camped and we paddled in and camped all the way in, uh, in what we determined was a good spot looking for Bigfoot. So uh, nothing eventful, uh, but it was quite an experience to learn what it's like to, quote unquote, live in that in that swamp, the biggest swamp in the US. So uh, long winded answer. I think it's a Bigfoot uh, more than a monkey. Yeah, I was, I, it seems to me they would all be from the same family uh, to, to a degree. Uh, let's see what else we got here. Um, actually, we have to let's go. And let's finish our roundtable and then we can get to some of the questions in the chat with the time we got left. So is that you? Yeah, Mr. Sharp. Oh, it's my turn to ask a question. Yes. Yes, sir. Okay, I have it written down. This is and my shame- wife just got home from Brazil. Shameless, so shameless book plug number two. In chapter 11 of Sasquatch Unleashed, The Truth Behind the Legend, I talk about this. Human population growth and land loss. How it potentially affects Bigfoot, their movements, and more importantly, I guess for me, just as a side subject, how does it affect how many sightings we have of these things when we're encroaching into their area. So I'd like to hear from the the panel what they're feeling on our human population growth and land loss, it, how it affects the population of Sasquatch that are out there. Let's just take the continental United States. I just want to say, Brian, we, you and I should talk about your branding because I'm having a hard time figuring out the name of your podcast, what you're hosting. So <laughs> let's we got to work on that. Anyway, Scott, go ahead, sir. Yeah, I've been taking notes here. I'm going to make a banner for the next time that I. Uh... Doug, Doug made this banner for me, so maybe you can Venmo him some money, and he'll. I think he'll I will. Make... There's a few yeah. things I'm going to owe Doug for. I think after this call, and you, but um... <laughs> Bigfoot's all over the map, dude. <laughs> uh, a consulting fee for sure. But to to jump on your question, and this is actually one of my favorite things to look at because uh, it's very easily viewed through a map when you have the uh, good data set to put behind all the the points in the map, all the reports that have come in. And um, I'll refer to the data set first. It's uh, the green infrastructure data set put out by Esri. And what it is, is it's a bunch of corridors, right, uh, that connect wildlife hubs. So like a wildlife hub would be a state forest, a national forest, state park, uh, big green area with uh, high conservation value. So it can support a lot of wildlife, right? And then between these areas, you start to get the most traveled uh, corridors, which have the least cost pathways. So what's the uh, path of least resistance between each uh, each hub, right? And you can start to see what human progress, I guess I'll call it, and development is doing to these corridors. It's starting to squeeze them so they become more and more defined funnels. So if you look at land use or land cover over time uh, and go back 
as far as you can, you'll see that there's just vast areas. It's hard to whittle down really identifiable corridors, or there might be a lot of corridors in a specific area. But when you start to pave over things, build highways, you start to separate uh, environments, things like that, uh, you can really start to see defined corridors. And I think that may increase the amount of sightings because now you need a, you need people to have sightings, but now there's so much more surrounding these corridors and there's so uh, few and far between in highly developed areas that the wildlife, not just Bigfoot in this, these areas, have no choice but to go through the same funnel over and over again between these big areas. So that's when they're exposed. That's when they're at risk of being seen from the side of a highway, perhaps, or people hiking, things like that. Because there's now there's a lot more outdoor activity, especially in the Pacific Northwest, for example. There's so many hikers. It's such a big part of the culture. And that's why you see such a big hotspot there, right? Now in the Southeast, maybe you don't see that as many sightings in the summer because as Sibylla pointed out, it's a million degrees here and nobody wants to be out in the swamp with, uh, you know, mosquitoes the size of your fist. So uh, you might not see those sightings, but there are people driving these highways down in the Southeast, for example, and in Florida and, th and, and hotter areas that are heavily developed where you might see uh, wildlife from the road. So I think, um, again, I'm pretty long-winded. It must be the caffeine tonight, but uh, I think to answer your question, I think that sightings are increasing. You see that sharp increase from like the 60s forward, right? Um, because of human development, just displacing uh, these creatures from their environment, habitat, destruction, things like that. And then what's really left behind for them to travel is so uh, sparse, right? So they only have the choice of using these corridors that are left over or that weave between uh, suburbs or things like that, drainages, rivers, creeks, etc. I was going to say, uh, th this is not long-winded. I heard a podcast the other night, Scott. The host went an hour and 40 minutes and never got to answer, ask a question. So <laughs> it wasn't one that I did, did it? Was it? <laughs> no, I'm not going to tell anybody who it was on air, but it sometimes was I get, I told I get on a tangent sometimes. An hour and 40 minutes that the, the host never asked one, got to ask his first question. Anyway, wow. uh, let's go to Amy. <laughs> I hope that I'm going to answer the question. Okay. I start getting going off of tangents in my own mind, but um, as far as, you know, where they can survive privately as far as that land disappearing. I think it's scary for all kinds of animals. And the first thing I thought about when you asked that question was, I remember reading an article last year and hopefully I don't get details wrong. So I'm not going to say that many details. Um, but there were um, in Africa, there were a bunch of elephants that were dying and they couldn't figure out, why they were dying, like hundreds of elephants. And from what I remember, it was because um, just exactly that their habitat was shrinking. So their population was denser. And then there was like some type of bacteria um, that was attacking them and they died from it. So I think, you know, it's a concern for all animals if that is to happen and um i don't know what to do about it you know um but 
agree with you, Scott, that the likelihood of seeing one is probably greater as as they're crowding in, but not sure that that's, well, I don't, I know you don't think so either. It's not a good thing, um, but it's something to be concerned about. Yep, maybe sightings will pick up. Uh, Mr. Hacek. Well, um, I listened to what Scott said, but one thing that's never talked about is that, yeah, these corridors and there's a lot of development are getting narrower, but that's where the animals are focused. That's where all the wild turkeys exist. That's where all the deer exist. Um, they're focused. If any of you have ever gone into the true, true wilderness, I'll bet you good money you won't even see a bird. You won't see deer. You won't see moose. You won't see anything. Most of the animals stay towards the edges. If, if man has made a road, that's your best spot at spotting something because they were using those areas. If there's farm fields, edges, barbed wire, um, it's actually um, helped wildlife. And I think Bigfoot punches into those uh, suburban areas, you know, the, the urban sprawl uh, to go after the wildlife. I mean, it's so bad here in my own neighborhood, the wildlife, it's hard to even go biking because there's so many deer herds so many turkey flocks and they're blocking the trails i mean it's it's kind of insane we'll have to wait an hour sometime to even get by because there's so much wildlife and i don't want to you know plow through a herd of deer um but this is where we're seeing the, you know the fox the coyotes the uh, uh grouse the pheasants just everything and then of course you've got eagles and hawks overhead um and so there's always, uh, there's yeah, there's a price to pay for urban sprawl, but there's also some benefits. It does seem to balance out because um, they're finding out right now that wolves um, are actually thriving and, and because of the man-made edges, because of the roads, because of the trails, gives them very easy travel corridors. Um so that's, you know, that's, that's kind of the other side of the coin, I guess. And I'm not saying I'm for urban sprawl. I'm not. Um, it's just, I think it's gotten way out of hand. But I do know that um, the wildlife seems to adapt to it and, and flocks to it because we have uh, a bigger variety of plants on those edges. We have uh, agriculture on those edges, which many animals take advantage of. And so it may not be the the, um, the predator that takes advantage of the agriculture. It may be the the um, prey animal that does, and so it attracts the predator. Uh, so it's 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 far more complicated than one might think. I also wanted to um, respond to one of the comments. Uh, I think somebody misunderstood me when I was saying Bigfoot's operate on fear. I think she thought, or he thought, I was saying Bigfoot's cause. Fear in people. No, I was saying there, uh, when an animal operates on fear, it's afraid of humans. It stays away from humans. It does Defense what it can to avoid humans. That's yeah. what I meant. So, Eddie, I just Absolutely. wanted to clarify that too. Um, Sibylla, let's say you're headed down to your local Dairy Queen in Southwest Texas to get a blizzard. I'm sure you get an Oreo blizzard every now and again. Do you expect <laughs> to see Bigfoot? No. <laughs> He's like, no, I'm low sugar. So anyway. <laughs> um, you know, I, I, the, I, th I believe these beings are so 
highly intelligent and so highly adaptive. And I, I really think that if they're living in close proximity to people, that they learn, like they, like say a family. And, and the reason I say this is because I kind of felt this when I moved into that house in Crittenden, Kentucky. I, I really felt like I was watched and studied, like, okay, so here, let's see what kind of a threat this, this person is. And I, I was watched and kind of studied. And then, you know, human beings' lives are so incredibly patterned that it, it wouldn't take very long to know what time these people are getting up, what time they're leaving for work, what time they're coming home, what time they go to bed, so that if you were going to wanted to raid their chickens, you'd know exactly what time when the lights went out to go and go, you know, get their chickens or something. So I really think that these creatures are so adaptable that they they're going to adapt to wherever they're living uh -oh. and to the it's people that are, Oops, did I? Uh, can y'all still hear me? You're back. You're back. Okay. Yes, I, I just think it's just my experience that they're so highly adaptable to their situations and to what's going on in their situations that, uh, you know, I think these people, these things can be living right around people. And after living on this, um, this place for five years, I absolutely understand why there's farmers all around there that have no idea that the Sasquatch are living among them. Because what they do on a daily basis is so subtle that if you're not paying attention, you're not even gonna, you're not, you know, you're not gonna, you're not gonna see the things they leave behind, you know, unless they're slamming your house, which they did that, or you know, or throw things. But um, I think the average person is just gonna write stuff off as something else. I mean, they, I think that they are they are highly adaptive and they can live around humans. And if the, um, you know, if the neighborhood keeps expanding, they'll just keep adapting. That's kind of what I think. I think the only reason they slapped the house, they thought like, oh, Sibylla's making fries. She's not using lard. She's using canola oil. That probably, that probably, you know, that probably made them a little angry. Um, so that was, uh, that was everybody. So we got some questions from the chat here. This is from our friend Mick from the UK. Debs, would you read this one, ma'am? Question. Has Doug and anyone on the panel managed to capture any really good video footage of Sasquatch? Not me. Nope. No video footage, but I'll, I'll put an asterisk up. I haven't got to ask my question of all you guys yet. So. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought we'd miss you. Okay. I'm sorry. Uh, Scott goes next. No, no. Go ahead and answer the question, but I yeah, haven't please. got any video footage. I wish. Yeah, therein lies the problem, Mick. I mean, it. everybody is trying to get – so we've alluded to the intelligence throughout the show here. Doug has a, a couple of tricks up his sleeve, some he tried uh, last year. Uh, more he'll try this year. Um, so the issue is not closed, but they're incredibly intelligent about avoiding cameras. I mean, that's that. I think that's the bottom line, and, and couple that with the, the fear that – they can instill in people when they do have the chance to take a photo and you're front and center, but you're just so freaked out that, you know, you're not thinking about, let me get my camera out. Now you're probably like thinking, can I survive this, this encounter? So, and please, and everybody that wants to take a shot at that. And then Scott will go. Can I say something about it? Please, ma'am. About the video. Um, that's probably one of the biggest questions I get. You know, I go to a lot of, 
places, outdoor shows, different places talk about Sasquatch. And um, what I always like to point people to is the Cross River Gorilla, which is I brought up earlier. Um, they are in Africa on the border of Cameroon and Nigeria. And it was just this century that they were really no longer cryptids to most scientists. You know, they weren't thought to exist. They were thought to be mythological. The, the people there, the natives, were just using these stories about these hairy men in the woods, except they're real. And if you look them up, you can see the first video ever taken of them where, um, you know, people were looking at them for years and years. And one of the uh, primate zoologists that I work with in Project Zoo Book, the curator of a zoo that he used to work in was one of the first Westerners that saw these gorillas in person. And he lived there for, I believe, eight years had different guides taking him around trying to find these gorillas and finally saw them for a total of 10 seconds. So, you know, they would find some signs, um, nests, you know, different things like that, but couldn't find the actual gorillas. But anyway, if you look up that first camera trap footage, um, there are several females that are coming out of the trees and one male, one silverback, comes into the frame and he bluff charges that camera and all of them are looking right at the camera. So I like to say that was a lot of luck that they got that footage to begin with. And every single one of those gorillas was aware of that camera. You know, they, it wasn't, um, it wasn't, uh, you know, that they were just walking by and they sneakily got footage, you know, it was in the right place at the right time, but they knew it was there, whether they could hear something or smell it, or it was just something mm -hmm. odd where they normally go. You know, um, I don't think Bigfoot has to be much different than that. They're intelligent and they can avoid things, I think. So I'm not sure where that question was coming from. Um, I'm assuming, maybe I shouldn't assume, but we get a lot of why aren't, why aren't there more pictures? Why don't we have more video? And, and I just, point people to that because that was just the sense we finally got them on camera yeah i mean the the real reason there's no pictures because nobody's hiding cameras a camera trap strapped to a tree is not hiding a camera uh, i'm working on systems where the cameras are completely hidden there's no way i could say it's right there on that tree and you won't be able to find it that's what it'll take multi-step planning because these creatures seem to be very savant-like where they can i mean they know their environment and they spot them and they avoid them mm -hmm. um but we did an experiment last year and we had them standing on our cameras because they were hidden unfortunately right, there was there was no natural light because uh there was thick cloud cover there was no moon um under that cloud cover either so it was just really really black no stars nothing but we're hoping we're going to do the same exact thing in the same area this year but we've got good good moon coming so we've looked at the uh the the uh the cellular tables and we know that we're going to have good moon and all we need is good weather but um if you can take a miniature camera and i would say like a motorcycle dash cam camera system that's ir turn the ir lights off because you don't want that garbage and then hide the camera so it cannot be seen. 
Now, I'm not talking about barely seen. No, it cannot be seen at all. And when you can figure that out, now you've got something. You have to actually put it under something to where something walking cannot see it. Um, completely 100% out of view. And there's no no light, IR, or any other type coming out of the camera. I think then uh, the game will change. Don't bet against Doug Highcheck is what I have to say. Um, <laughs> in the, in so the we, chat, they're saying... Oh, I'm sorry. We have, about, we have about seven minutes left. So I want to get... I want to get Scott's uh, question in here, but let we need to tighten it up a little bit because then we want to go through all of everybody's projects before we close the show. So please go ahead, Scott. Seven minutes. That's a challenge. Okay. <laughs> yes. Make be brief and, yeah, and uh, answer. So I'm, I, I will be brief. I, I'd like actually to get Brian being former law enforcement. Uh, I think you may have good insight into one of my biggest frustrations with the Bigfoot mapping project is um, I try to find data that is uh, corroborating or supporting data like forest type or agricultural data, USDA data, USGS data. And one of the biggest challenges I have is finding cave locations. And in my research, I've found that uh, in, let's see, let me, I'm going to have, I have it up on my screen here. Uh, in U.S. Code Chapter six, uh, 63 from Title 16, Section 4304, if I were to find those cave locations and publish them on a map, I'm actually violating federal law. That's why I cannot find cave locations. And I'm going to get a little conspiratorial here. And my, <laughs> my justification is, uh, for example, they, they justify it under safety, right? Uh, they don't want people going spelunking and dying in a cave. But if that were the case, you know, why why don't they keep people from climbing cliff faces? And, you know, half dome in, in uh, any national park or up a mountainside. If it was truly for safety, um, why aren't they doing things like hiding, obscuring waterfall locations or other dangerous locations? Why is it just caves? And why I get frustrated is because so many people reach out to, to me on my channel asking, you know, can you show me cave locations in, uh, in comparison to like the Bigfoot sightings? How close are they? There's theories that they retreat to caves, live in caves. And all I'm able to find is cave concentration. Like in Kentucky, I have great cave density data, great, uh, great data available there. But uh, nationally, I'm unable to find a really good data set. So I was curious if anybody had an opinion or insight into maybe a little conspiratorial opinion or uh, something beyond just blanket safety, why the, that data set is so protected. I'll take, uh, I, I can certainly uh, try to use a couple of sources I have and see if they know anything about it. I've had difficulty getting anybody, getting Lou Elizondo to talk about uh, Bigfoot other than one episode or any of the, the big players, one of my other guys that's inside. I just, I'm looking for that one person. And I think once we get one person um, like Tim Burchett from Tennessee or Tim Burchett, if you want to, how he says it. Somebody like that, who I also I've heard uh, that he uh, he has had a Bigfoot experience, as has Mitch McConnell. Just I guess it's the political expediency for them to talk about it. But uh, mm -hmm. if we can get one person, I think we'll get some movement. Uh, so go ahead and uh, for that would be Amy first. Um, I don't know 
about any uh, conspiracy or anything like that. I do know, maybe I shouldn't say this, but I do know that one of the reasons I went back to school to become an Ohio certified volunteer naturalist is because we get access to different things that I don't as a uh, private citizen. So one of the things I was most interested in are the cave maps that um, I was able to see. That's something I'm really interested in, especially somewhere like Ohio, where you don't have as much covering like as you do in the Pacific Northwest. So um, what? why they don't, I mean, I guess I always thought it was just the danger of it, mm -hmm. you know, somebody getting hurt. Um, sometimes the government thinks we're a bunch of simpletons and can't uh, follow <laughs> follow safety uh, procedures, but um, but that is one reason that I. Yeah, I guess I ask if I can add on to that. I ask because you don't typically hear the government doing something proactively. They they usually make a law in reaction to something. True. And you know, just blanket safety. It's not very specific why they just. T it's like a single line in the code. Oh, it's just for safety. So it just triggered my curiosity. Yeah. Why? Why yeah. is it such a serious law at the federal level? Um regarding caves if it's just for safety when there's not many similar laws that I'm aware of for other natural features. And I'll just chime in here and tell you my personal experience from being in law enforcement for 16 years, there was probably, if you trace this back and really dial in when the law was introduced and when it was passed, there may have been some family that died in a cave in some area. There was something very specific that predicated this law being introduced into Congress and being ultimately adopted. I mean, there's weird laws on the books, dude. I mean, I remember being a, an Atlanta city cop. I think it's still on the law now that a lady can't walk down Peachtree street in Atlanta without wearing gloves. That's against the law. You can't <laughs> spit on the sidewalk. I mean, there's just these weird laws, but most of them had something to do with a specific incident. So I bet if you really drilled down, I think it's probably less conspiratorial and more about some specific thing that happened and somebody in their district took it up as a, you know, they're carrying the the gauntlet for these people and they ended up getting this law passed and it just affects everything. So, I mean, my opinion, it's probably a little less conspiratorial and it's probably something very simple that happened. It might've happened 150 years ago, but the law is still on the books. But I think it's something that we could, definitely start to band together and look into as a community as a whole and start calling out your your local representation whatever state you're in and talk about this law that's on the books and i mean that's how change happens i mean somebody could take this up and actually maybe get it overturned or abridged to a point where that may be more public information i don't know just my two cents getting hands on that data set would be really amazing Somebody in the chat said about not disturbing endangered bats. It's a really good point. It could be ecological yes. reasons. That's true. Uh, there is one uh, rich man from Nebraska who started the low-fat food craze, and uh, the reason why McDonald's no longer uses beef tallow in their uh, their French fry uh, concoction uh, is because of uh, one guy. Malcolm Gladwell did an entire show on how one guy started that. So like what you said, Brian, it's very possible – you get a group up there, like you said, somebody was killed in a cave or they, you know, local law enforcement, you know, found a number of people that, that had died exploring caves, got lost, became disoriented. I mean, you saw that that um, that Thai, uh, those Thai kids that were in that cave, were it not for those, you know, even with 
you know, my friends from Air Force uh, Pararescue and the Navy SEALs and the Thai Navy SEALs that were in attendance, had you not had those two British SAR guys, those guys who were expert at deep cave diving, um, they would those everybody would have died in there. It was only because those guys were able to locate them and not become disoriented and find their way out and all these things. So anyway, um, great question. Who, who, uh, who's going to go next? Doug, uh, gonna, t- well, let's see, we got Amy. So yeah, Doug, please. Well, um, at first, uh, before I even want to think about caves, I've got to ask myself, is there any connection between Bigfoot's using caves? Um, and that's, I, I hear that all the time yet. I've never really seen any, evidence of them using caves as travel routes or shelter. Um, it doesn't mean they, they don't. I'm just saying I don't, I don't see a lot of evidence to it. But I would think that um, with a little searching, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to work on this, Scott, there's got to be a, a group of national splunkers that have mapped out all these cave lo- there, there are, uh, there's a lot of speleological societies I've found, and they're very, very, um, very protective of their data really? sets. Really? That's interesting. Yes. That is interesting. Do you feel that Bigfoots are utilizing caves, Scott? I don't know. I would like to get the data set so I can make an opinion, uh, get yeah. on that without having anything to analyze. I really... I, I would like to explore it further. And, and that's one of the data sets that uh, causes me the most frustration because I get a lot of questions about that. And I really yeah. have no way to answer them other than speculation. Is there but, is there a map that would show limestone um, uh, karst. concentrations? Karst, yes. Mm-hmm. Are there maps that show where the karst is uh, concentrated yes. around the country? Yeah. Because anywhere you have karst, you're going to have caves, period. Doug is going to take this for action. We will I'm attack excited. this in our next roundtable. We will present Doug's findings. I love it, man. He's a badass. Who else? Uh, Sibylla. Uh, I kind of fall on the side with Brian. I, I think that it, it it was probably because it was necessary. Um, you know, if people have, I mean, this happened locally not too long ago. There was a huge, huge cave found in South Texas. And I think they kind of let out at it out of the bag as where it was and people started flooding the area, you know, so they, they had to hire security to keep people from going there. Yeah. People are just not smart and they don't respect other people's property. It seems like so. It can be very, very dangerous from what it sounds like uh, those caves. I've never spelunked or anything, but it, it sounds like uh, it could get, you could really easily get turned around. I've heard about people, Diving. I once heard, you know, one of the UFC fighters talk about about cave diving, um, you know, and he said, man, it's just like you were you were this close to, to getting lost in there. And if your buddy gets lost, you know, you got to leave him in there because panic sets in and you use up all your air and all these things. So, um, all right. Uh, if there's any final comments and then we're going to go to. The cat, we'll do our cabbie goodbyes where we'll thank you. And we also want to hear everybody uh, talk about all the projects uh, that they're doing. So uh, any final comments between uh, you amazing panelists? Okay, I'll take that as a no, Nathan. All right. <laughs> Let's it's been an incredible conversation, though. Uh, just yes, really, sir. really captivating. So thank you all for joining us. Um, do you want to go alphabetically through so people can talk about uh, Yeah, please. Yeah. Amy. 
What do you want to know? No, we just wanted to, we really just, uh, what we do is we say thank you uh, for joining us. Um, and, um, you know, just like giving of your time, man, you're uh, so nice to uh, chat with. I hope that we can have you on again so that you can uh, uh, give us more of this knowledge that you've gained because you are like all in on this. Right? That's so fun. Thank you for having me. Thank, thank you. you. Yeah, it's great to have you. And Amy, for those of our listeners who may not be familiar with your work, where can they find you? Where's the best place to find your, your work now? Well, I'm on Facebook, um, which is where I normally am. Um, thankfully, we are getting toward the finish line with uh, Project Zoobook getting or having a new website, which we've been wanting to do for a long time. There's like a really rudimentary one out there where people can at least contact us, but it's going to be interactive. Um, hopefully it will be up sooner rather than later. Um, as far as the Olympic project also has a website that people can get on to. Um, as far as projects I'm doing this weekend starts my two month uh, run of going to different outdoor shows all over Ohio and Pennsylvania, where I talk to different hunters and fishermen and get Bigfoot stories. It's one of my favorite things that I do. So that's starting this weekend. Um, and I'm also writing a book. I'm getting toward the end of it um, and excited about that. So doing a project with Native Americans and all kinds of different things. So I'm excited. You don't have enough things to do. You're really bored. I know, right? Plus yeah. teaching was great. Plus teaching. <laughs> and I will see you at the Ohio Bigfoot Conference, yeah? Will I will there? not be there, but I wish I could see you. Yeah. I got an uh, invitation from Tim, who's the one who connected me with Doug. Tim um, Halloran and Dana. So, um, okay. So let's go to our next victim person. Sorry, oh, <laughs> Mr. Hijack Debs. Well, uh, well, once again, thank you, DJ, for you know inviting me. Thanks, everybody. Um, some really brilliant people here. Um, I, I'm just trying to work on Legend Meet Science too. Um, keep my uh, uh, podcast going. Untold Radio AM and the network. Untold Radio uh, yes. uh, uh, Radio Network going. And uh, we're publishing books. If anybody's got a really cool book, Amy, um, if you <laughs> want us to give you a, give you some uh, a spiel, we'd be happy to do that. But generally, um, you can get a hold of me on Facebook. And um, I just love talking about the topic. If people have questions or just comments, please get a hold of me. And Pine Island Research, is that Jeff? That's right? Jeff, yes. Hey, Jeff. What's yeah. up, Minnesota Hello, OG? Jeff. Yep. <laughs> All right, go ahead, Nathan Debs. Yeah, Doug, it's been great to have you on the show. Uh, this has been an incredible conversation, and uh, I hope we get to do it again because, DJ, this, I know there's like a bazillion things we could talk about, and I know I have questions that we didn't touch on, some of the ones that we've talked about on prior shows, but it would be great to get some responses from these folks. So looking forward to have you guys back. Thank Debs, you. Yes. Love to come back. Thank you so much to everybody. Absolutely. I'm thrilled that um, y'all were able to come together. I love seeing round tables like this. Um, and I have questions for all of you. <laughs> so I'll She's be back. writing a book. Doug, so <laughs> she might be a year or two years down the road before it's done. And also, if you want to debate somebody about Bigfoot, and I mean, not, you know, obviously not like an argument type thing, but like a legitimate Lincoln Douglas debate, 
Um, Deb will host you on anomalous debates. Um, next, we have to go to Miss Irwin. Yay, Sabilla! <laughs> hey, thank you so much for inviting me. It's just been so great to to get to see all of you and, and visit with you and get to know you. Um, uh, they, people can find me at uh, sibillairwin.com. And if they want to see the witness sketches, they just go to the gallery. There's a witness gallery. I just added a whole bunch of pictures from Matt Imch and uh, also from Mike Bluler. I just did released his um, video last Friday. And it's, it's, it's just literally taken off. It's got 43,000 views already just since Friday. Yeah, it's just blown up. Um, Mississippi's and, uh, also, own Mike Bluler. <laughs> yeah, I love Mike Bluler. Yeah. yeah, and um, yeah. yeah, so and um, and so sketching encounters. If they'll just go and please subscribe, and it's um, new witnesses like just all the time. Two tomorrow, I'm talking to. So I'm so excited. So and thank you again for having me here. Amazing, and I love go to. I love the sketches though they have on there because you get to see the diversity of of what these beings look like. Uh, Money Nathan Debs. Yeah, Sibylla, uh, you've been on the show before, and it's so great to have you back. It's just a real pleasure to speak with you, and I'm a huge admirer of your work, and, and your passion for the subject it just comes through. Uh, so thank you so much for joining us, and uh, we, we hope to have you back on the show, too, for, for to keep up with what you're up to. And as you said, you get lots of folks coming to talk to you all the time, so I know you're going to have new stories to share. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Thank you for coming. I hope that one day we can just do like a gallery of all your artwork. That'll be really cool. I hope we can just do like a show. Yeah. <laughs> that would yeah, be let's amazing. Let's do that. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Yeah, that would be great. Deb has so many good ideas. Oh my God, we're so lucky to have her. Uh, Brian King Sharp. I'm just, I'm just podcasting, man. You, you guys can find Sasquatch Odyssey, that Bigfoot podcast. You can find Backwoods Horror Stories. You can find Weird Encounters. You can find True Crime Odyssey. Anywhere you're listening to podcasts on your audio podcatchers. I do have a Sasquatch Odyssey and Backwoods Horror Stories YouTube channel. So if you're on YouTube and you're into that thing, you can find me there. The book is out for pre-sale. I am stoked about the book. Doug and Alex and all the guys at Hangar One Publishing were amazing at helping me get the book together. It was a project that I have had in my brain for many, many years, and we, we finally got it done, and I am stoked about how the book turned out. I'm very excited about it. I think there's a little bit of something in there for everybody. Sasquatch Unleashed, the truth behind the legend is out for pre-sale. HangarOnePublishing.com. You guys can check it out. And just go and listen to the show, man. The shows are all about this show, particularly Sasquatch Odyssey is all about the encounters. I highlight encounters from everywhere. It's all about people who have had experiences with these things because unlike Scott and some of the other more scientific people, I, I feel like I'm sort of a collector of data in my own right with the, the podcast. And we put it out there in perpetuity for everybody to listen to. And you can gain a little bit from every single one of these encounters that you hear on the show. And I think they're, they all have something to offer in the overall Bigfoot conversation so i'd love for you guys to listen to the show and, and check out all the encounters we're about 420 some odd episodes into sasquatch odyssey at this point so there's a little something out there for everybody and you can find me at paranormalworldproductions.com we have i think seven shows under the network at this point four i do myself and then other people have that we uh the basement hangout those guys are a phenomenal the kentucky x-files guys we have some really great shows a little bit of something in the cryptid world for everybody so we'd love to have you check it out for us 
Yeah, I just want to say congratulations on all your success, Brian. You have really gotten after it and just done an amazing job that podcasters can look at it and go, okay, if I can follow, you know, like what Brian did, I, I can be successful in this realm and do it as a, as a career. So congratulations, brothers. It's good to be your friend. Uh, Money Nathan. Yeah, it's awesome to have you with us, Brian. And uh, I know how hard it is to do podcasts. I do too, but you know, to do more than two, which is clearly what you're doing, I can't. I don't even know how you find the time. So, uh, absolutely incredible, and uh, I just love your approach, your investigative and analytical approach to the topic. It's really refreshing, and really just super happy you were able to join us tonight. And looking forward to have you back. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for joining us. I look forward to hearing more about your book in the future. And um, I definitely will be checking out your um, podcast, one of your podcasts. There's so many, but definitely <laughs> for awesome. sure, at least one. So thank you. People love Brian. Is that your co-host Tiffany in the in the chat? Is that her? Yep, that's Tea Time with Tiffany. She she helps a, a lot at, on Paranormal Odyssey with Wayne, and she joins yep. us for the live shows on That Bigfoot Podcast. We love Tiffany. She has a couple of books out. You guys go over and hang her one publishing. She's done a couple of books that she's got out over there as well. So check her check her stuff out. Hi, Tiffany. Welcome. We hope to see you again. And thank just real quick, thank you, Doug, for getting everybody's work out there. It's just another thing that you're doing in the community. Uh, Mr. Thompson. Uh, I just want to say thank you for having me on such an esteemed panel. Uh, everyone's input and feedback and ideas and opinions are going to be swirling around my head while I'm feeding my baby tonight. So, uh, you know, I have, I don't really have time to sleep, so I have plenty of time to think. Um, I'm looking forward to sharing these stories with him as he grows up. Um, uh, really happy to be here. And if you'd like to follow the Bigfoot mapping project, it's bigfootmap.com and on Instagram it's at Bigfoot Mapping Project. And you can always reach out to me there. But another great way to get a hold of me would be just Scott at Bigfootmap.com is my email. And you can email me with any questions, whether it be about Bigfoot, uh, GIS, maps, technical stuff, you name it. I'm always open for interesting questions and I'll do my best to get back to you. I really enjoy um, hearing from everyone and and getting to talk to people a little bit behind the scenes. It's a lot of fun. Um, this really made me feel like home, Scott, because, uh, you know, you're a hometown brother. I told you I go back there all the time and your accent, it reminds me of home. And I'm just uh, so proud of, uh, you know, to be from the Hudson Valley. So uh, well, and when you, you know, SUNY Cortland, it was just awesome. <laughs> I've got to plug. If you go home all the time, you've got to go yeah. to Beacon and go on main street and go to glazed over donuts. That's my mother and father's donut shop. So if you go in and say hi to them, they will load you up with a lifetime supply of donuts. It's uh, <laughs> it's Yelp top 100 donut shops in the country. So please go check it out. Yeah. Uh, shameless plug, will... but I have nothing to do with their donuts. I'm just proud of them. They do a good job. I will endeavor to do that. I'll be up there in August. Uh, like I told you, that's my, my plan, my next one will be August, and then I'll do a winter iteration. I'll be back. Cool. Well, tell them so. hi for me. I hope you stop in. Thank you, sir. <laughs> All right. Uh, Money, Nathan, and Debs. Yeah, Scott, just awesome to have you with us. Um, it's my first introduction to your work, and the Bigfoot Mapping Project is super cool. I got a chance to look through that material. So congrats on getting that launched and, and the continuing developing that you're doing with that. It's uh, much needed, obviously, in this space to bring that kind of analytical and uh, collection approach to the topic. So 
thanks for what you're doing and good luck as a, as a new parent uh, with the little one. I know that's not easy. Uh, it's a whole project of its own. So uh, good, good luck with all of that and hopefully we get a chance to talk with you again, again soon. Thank you so much, Scott, and congratulations again on the baby. And I think it's amazing what you're doing because data is amazing. Um, so thank you very much for contributing that to the to this realm of anomalous beings and so forth. My pleasure. De Debs, you're awesome, man. All right, everybody. It's been great. And uh, please, like I said, if you would email me anything that uh, you would like in the show notes, because I just love filling up the show notes with everybody's links and stuff. And uh, I hope to see all of you again as a collective or individually back on Calling All Beings. Uh, give us a like and subscribe. Julie, thank you very much for being the amazing person that you are. And for um, Amy, for Doug, for uh, Sibylla, Brian, and Scott. This is, and of course, Cabby's Money Nathan and Debs. This is DJ saying peace out, one love. We'll see you down the road. And we're always wondering what's up around the bend. <laughs>